Well, I've only had the privilege of being here, uh, I guess, two times previous, but uh, I want to just thank you on all those times for greeting me, letting me worship with you. Worship today was amazing. Thank you. It was a blessing to me. Um, and teaching my kids in children ministry when they were here last time. So I'm very happy to be here. Um, this message is the one I prepared for our young adult ministry at Covenant Life. So it has a few references to pop culture and fantasy literature, but hopefully that yeah, won't bother you too much. So um, the, the message I'm preaching for is from Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. So you can turn there. And uh, later in this passage, Paul's going to use a unique word in verse 10, and that word is manifold. And that word means something like multicolored cloth or painting. And so the picture I have in my head is of a, um, a beautifully cut gemstone. And it's multifaceted like a diamond, and it's like a prism where when you shine white light through it, it reflect, refracts all the colors of the rainbow. Um, and so uh, here's uh, something I brought. When I proposed to my wife, I, I put the ring inside here. And so it was a dark night on the Potomac River. And I'm surprised if this thing even still works. Nope. Yep, it does, but it's not dark. So this is a uh, not quite a gemstone, but if you're having difficulty with a picture, the idea is you have a light that pierces through here and refracts on everything else. So hopefully that'll help in the stories and stuff. So before we dive into the passage itself, I hope you allow me a few minutes of storytelling because I think it will help us get the sense of where Paul's going. So there's a type of story that shows up in all kinds of literature, in books, and movies, and games, and it goes something like this. Once upon a time, there was a kingdom, and this kingdom was at peace. And the goodness and the peace of this kingdom was held together by some force. In some stories, it's a warrior, it's a gemstone, it's an artifact. And then some evil comes and with cunning and force shatters that peace and scatters it. And so the fragments of that gemstone are scattered to the seven winds. And then if someone could just find and gather all those pieces together, everything would be right again. And so in, this, in whatever story it is, the heroes, it's usually their mission to go and find these pieces and restore harmony to this kingdom. And this pattern of peace and then loss and then the hunt for restoration is a familiar storyline to a lot of us. It shows up in Egyptian mythology as Isis is hunting for the scattered pieces of Osiris. It shows up in Marvel movies as the heroes are looking for the Infinity Stones back in time. It shows up in Star Wars as they're trying to find the Jedi who's going to bring balance to the Force. In Narnia, they're searching for the sons and daughters of Eve. It's an old story, but we keep coming back to it in a lot of our literature, don't we? And I think that's because the core of this story is written on our hearts. God has woven history into a tapestry, and this is one of the main threads. All of us live in a real world, a world full of arguments, impatience, and injustice. And I'm aware even of arguments that I had with my family last night, and the tension of those arguments that are only partially resolved is affecting me even now. But it was not always this way. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful land bursting with life, a paradise at peace, and that was Eden. 
the land of the four rivers. And in that land, mankind was at peace, peace with God, in harmony with nature, and with each other. The peace of Eden was shattered by the serpent and the sin of mankind. And this sundering of mankind has fractured every relationship known to man. Your relationships, my relationships, our marriages, our friendships, our neighbors, our coworkers, and our classmates. No more would Adam and Eve walk the length of Eden side by side with God in the cool of the day. And no more would the trees trust man with their fruit so freely. And no more would man look another in the eye with the same trust and freedom. I'm sure you all feel this. Our love is cautious now because of sin, because of my sin and yours. And so in our story, the brilliant gemstone is not just an item. It's our very selves. All of us have been shattered and scattered across the world, separated from the Creator and from one another. And every single attempt to reunify humanity is flawed, from the Tower of Babel to tribalism, nationalism, imperialism, public policies, nonprofit organizations, all flawed. <sighs> Nothing has stemmed the tide of fear and mistrust that humanity feels towards one another. Who can fix this? Which one of us would dare take up this unification? Because deep down, we know we have contributed to the fracturing with our family, with our friends, in our church, in our jobs. Only Jesus can take up this charge. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love he chose us, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Us? Holy and blameless? Yes. There is hope for our fractured souls. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. That's why he came to restore everything. Ephesians 1.9 says, And he made known to us the secret purpose of his will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Why? To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Uh, your Bible probably says the word mystery in Ephesians 1.9 instead of secret. And I'm going to be translating that secret. And here's why. is because... Whenever I hear the word mystery, I just assume I'm supposed to be confused. And I don't think that's what Paul had in mind when he used this word mysterion. I think he wants us to be excited. This is a hidden thing, a secret thing. And uh, I don't know if you guys had a best friend lean in and say, hey, want to hear a secret? It's, uh, it's kind of exciting. You're like, yeah, <laughs> I want to hear a secret. Who can resist that? So what's the secret purpose to God's will? To unite all things in Christ. That's his end game, the reconciling of all things. So mankind, like this gemstone, was shattered. <coughs> but God had a plan. In the fullness of time, mankind had spread across the globe after the rise and fall of the great empires, when Israel was but a tiny kingdom on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. God had a plan that the scattered chosen of God's people would be reunited in a peaceful relationship with God, with creation, and each other in one person, Jesus Christ. 
He is the seed promised in Genesis 3. He has died and he has been raised and he has sprouted and the root and shoot of King David is rising out of the ground like a plant. And its vine and branches are growing in you and in you. You are the branches. But here's the tension. The tree has not yet grown to its full height. There are more branches to be grafted in, more fruit to be produced. And this tree grows in the broken earth of shattered Eden, where even this morning my life and your life are threatened by the poison of strife and the blight of disunity. The wisdom of God has not yet been fully manifested to the ends of the earth. And now I want to get into Ephesians 3, but I hope you feel the tension now that even though Jesus has died on the cross, it is finished. We are justified, right? Something is not yet resolved. Your non-Christian friends don't see the glory of God manifested yet. Right? Our spiritual enemy, the devil, and his forces of fallen angels don't see it yet. So with this tension in mind, let's go to the end of chapter 2. Paul has been talking about bringing in the Gentiles into the church, Gentiles like me, and most of you, I presume. Ephesians 2.22. In Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he stops abruptly. It's incredibly awkward for me as a reader. I don't know if you guys are looking at your Bibles or it's this big dash. <laughs> it's like, what's going on here? Uh, Paul's excited about the Gentiles being brought into the church and on the verge of launching into this great prayer, uh, and he stops because there's something he's not sure we've got. He's not sure we've understood it yet. Something we've got to get before he can pray. So let's see if we can try to figure out what that is. Ephesians 3.1, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, uh, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Why? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Why did Paul pause to tell us all that? 
I think Paul's suffering and imprisonment for the sake of the Gentiles is what stops him. It's at the beginning and the end of this passage. Listen to verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Gent- of Christ Jesus, for you, Gentiles. Now hear verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. Paul wants us to know why he's here in prison, why he's suffering. And he, you can almost hear him asking the question, you know why I'm doing this, right? You've heard of God's grace for you. There was a secret revealed to me, hidden since the dawn of time. And God leaned in and whispered into my ear, Paul, do you want to know a secret? Those Gentiles, the people you don't want to eat with, the people you won't invite into your homes, the people you're scared to shake hands with because you're afraid they'll contaminate you, the ones you keep on the other side of the temple wall, those are my children too. They're part of my church, my body, and my promises are for them too. Now, this isn't a huge surprise for anyone that just read chapter 2. Remember, there was this incredible divide between Jews and Gentiles. And it was a big upset when Paul said they're fellow heirs and indispensable parts of the church. So what's new here in chapter 3? Let's read verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the secret of Christ. What's the insight? What's Paul after? There's not just a secret revelation that the Gentiles are part of the church. There's a plan, a secret plan. That's what he's saying in verse 7 to 9. Of this gospel, I was made a minister to preach and to bring to light for everyone the secret hidden for ages in God. All right, what is it, Paul? This is what I've been building to. (laughs) So if you haven't been with me until now, here's the time to listen. The plan is in verse 10, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the multicolored, varied, various wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through you, the wisdom of God in all its glory and all its facets, like a gemstone shining all light, will shine forth to every corner of the universe. And this is the climax. You can see it building. Look at the progression of Revelation. First, the revelation is into Paul in verse 3. And then the apostles and prophets in verse 5. And then it goes to the Gentiles in verse 8. And now everyone in verse 9. And if that wasn't enough, the revelation breaks the bounds of our physical world. And God's wisdom is now being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You know what that means? The angels and the demons will see your life and the effect the gospel has and bow to God because of it. Really, Paul, how? (laughs) We'll get there. Um, Part of the answer is in the next few chapters of Ephesians. But first, I just want us to pause and look at verse 11. This plan for the church to make known God's wisdom was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What purpose? I think it's the same purpose in chapter 1, verse 9. God made known to us the secret of his will, according to his purpose, to unite all things in Christ. 
things in heaven and things on earth. That's his purpose. Now we have our purpose. You see the connection? The plan for the church is in accordance with God's purpose to unite all things in Christ. The uniting of all things in Christ involves you, the church. So yes, Jesus is the hero who will restore the world and make it better than when it started. He takes all the shattered fragments, all of us, and unites us together. Well, the wonder of what Paul is saying is he wants you to join him. Jesus has invited you to be a part of the reconciling and healing of the world itself. And you can stand in his entourage, bold and holy, bold as a lion, bearing his sigil, unashamed. Why? That chapter 2, verse 13, because you who were once far off, he has brought near. And look down chapter 3, verse 12. In him, we have boldness and access. We have confidence through our faith in him. It's because of the gospel, because he died for you. We weren't seeking him. We were far off. He saw you, and he says, leave your kingdom and be trained as a soldier in my army and follow me. So now, look at verse 13 and hear the call of a captain. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. What? My glory? Our glory? Isn't all this about God's glory? Didn't Paul repeat three times in chapter one, this is all for the praise of the glory of God? Yes, but the astounding thing is that Jesus has offered you a share in the work and a share in the rewards of glory. In summary, Paul is saying, don't you see why I'm here in prison, in chains? I'm not disheartened here. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. Rome can't touch me. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, 1, he says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Why? Because this gospel preached to the ends of the earth is transforming a people who will shine forth the glory of the wisdom of their creator. So the angels are left in awe and the demons are confounded that all their attempts to fragment the world are coming undone. Now, I haven't explained how the church is going to accomplish this. And if you're like me, you might have just felt a terrible burden placed upon you. How on earth am I going to do that? So let's briefly review the book of Ephesians to this point. Where does this power come from? What's the engine for all this work, this grace that Paul's been talking about? In chapter one, Paul says the church is chosen by God, not you. He chose you. You can trust him. Redeemed through his blood, you have been made pure and holy. You were sealed and taught by the Holy Spirit. He's going to teach you how to do this. You are empowered by the same might that raised Jesus from the dead. Chapter two, you have been recreated for good works. Your old self is gone. You have been united with the Jews in one body, built into a holy temple. He's the power not us. In chapter 1, verse 19, it says, his power towards us is 
immeasurable. So every command and every imperative that you read from now until the end of Ephesians 6 should be emblazoned with this glory and empowered by the gospel of chapter 1 and 2. I'm going to try to shift into some application. How does the church do this? How do we shine forth the glory, the wisdom of God? The church is called to function with a level of love and unity that is unprecedented in all of history. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, the one I just explained, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so in the coming chapters, I encourage you guys to keep reading. There are ways we're supposed to do this. It will talk about the way we walk and talk with one another, the way we forgive, the sins we forego, the way we submit to one another and God-given authorities. This kind of unity is incredibly difficult. It's hard for me. Even in the context of marriage where a husband and wife love each other, it's hard. And that brings me to the second way that the church shines forth the glory and wisdom of God. It's by the incredible variety of people God chose to save. The church is a collection of people chosen by God that are different. They look different. They have different gifts, different ethnicities, different political views, different hobbies. The church is like a prismatic gemstone that shines forth all kinds of light. Each a different side of God's glory. God made you completely unique. No one else can shine forth that color that he made you to shine forth. And that's why you are part of his body. Because he wants the world to see that facet shining forth, united with the rest of the church. Here in chapter 2 and 3, Paul's focus is on the inclusion of the Gentiles, those non-Jews, because this, they mark an unprecedented move of God to incorporate all kinds of people into his kingdom. Let's listen to verse 9 again and hear God's commitment to restore his entire creation. The preaching of the Gentiles is to bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. The God who created all things, that's not a throwaway line. It's purposeful here, because in Revelations, he will be worshipped by every tongue and every tribe. The manifold wisdom of God is paralleled in the manifold makeup of his people. Did you catch that? The wisdom of God, many colored, is paralleled in the many colored makeup of his people and the different ways they are. 
Humanity lies in fragments and is divided by factions, but may this not be true in the church. Here's an example from Jesus' life. Jesus said, look up, lift up your eyes, see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus said this right after sharing the gospel with a woman that all of his disciples would have been too afraid to talk to. Why? Because she was a Samaritan, one of those messed up traitors who doesn't understand the Torah, and because she was a sinner, someone who messed up her whole life in serial marriages and is now living with her boyfriend. But by preaching the gospel to her, Jesus silenced all the voices that cry out, why her? She'll never believe. You really want her in the church? She'll mess it up with all her baggage and everything. You want her as a witness? The demons must have been sure they had her in their clutches. No way Jesus can rescue this mess. And he did. And not only that, she went to her town and preached what most of us would consider a pretty lame gospel message. Come see a man who said, told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That was your gospel message? The whole town came out, and many believed. And just like that, the wisdom of God in saving one person is vindicated. This is the secret purpose of the church now revealed, to join with Christ in shining his wisdom to the ends of the universe. So are you with him? Let's pray. Let's spend the next few minutes in prayer just asking God what he has for you this morning. Some of you need to start with your own relationship with God. You hear verse 12, in him we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And you just can't imagine that about yourself. Can I encourage you to go back and review chapter one and two and hear the gospel that you were dead and he made you alive. For many of us, I'm certain that God has in mind relationships in your life that don't reflect this unity that he talks about in chapter four. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. If there's anyone in your life that's not the recipient of this, now is a perfect time to talk to God about them and ask for his power. Remember, his power towards us is without measure. There are many other applications, so just close your eyes and just ask God, God, what do you want to say to me right now?